0: Promoting positivity and inclusivity, you're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world.
1: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo.
0: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Our topic today is the science of yoga. We'll be exploring how Western science is, has many correlates to the practices of yoga, which were historical and set down thousands of years ago hundreds or thousands of years ago. And it's quite interesting that there is so much science now that supports these uh, ancient yogic practices. I'm delighted to be joined today by Eddie Stern, who is a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City. Eddie is known for his multidisciplinary approach to furthering education and access to yoga, as well as his teaching expertise in Ashtanga yoga. Eddie has been practicing and studying yoga, Sanskrit, and related disciplines since 1987. He is the author of the book, One Simple Thing, a new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. He's currently an instructor at New York University in the Yoga and Physiology program. His latest app is Yoga 365, Micro Practices for an Aware Life, which you can get in your app store. You can find out more about Eddie Stern and his programs at his website, eddiestern.com. Just like it sounds, E-D-D-I-E, Stern is S-T-E-R-N, eddystern.com. And we will be posting this link on our website, theyogahour.com. Welcome, Eddie Stern. I'm so glad you could join me today on The Yoga Hour.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me.
0: So before we dive into our dialogue about the science of yoga, let's begin with a yoga moment. Let's begin with a moment of present moment awareness, bringing ourselves present right here and right now. So let's begin by bringing our awareness to our bodies in space and just feeling whatever we're doing right now, whether we're standing or sitting or walking, driving, just feeling our bodies in space, noticing where are our feet, what part of our weight is supported on different surfaces. And then just turning our attention to the breath and noticing your next breath as you take a fully conscious inhale And exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the change, feeling how the air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And just resting here, paying attention to our breathing. Here's something to contemplate. From the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien, from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. She writes, In our active lives with multiple demands, the needs of the soul for solitude, meditation, and contemplation seem easiest to ignore. Those who thrive in all areas of life know that honoring the soul must come first. This sets the tone for everything else we do. It is not enough to say we know the soul life is important. We must honor it daily. If we think of our daily meditation practice as one more thing to do, it will be dry, hurried, and unsatisfactory. Recognize recognize it as your time to saturate yourself with bliss and open yourself to divine wisdom and power. You will be abundantly fueled for the
1: day ahead. Om.
0: Once again, Eddie Stern. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. The last time you were on, you were discussing with Yogacharya O'Brien the, the science of yoga and your other book, One Simple Thing. I was say your book, One Simple Thing. Today, we're going to be focusing on the um, extensive article you wrote in the most recent Um, issue of Hinduism Today, the October, November, and December 2021 edition titled Yoga and Human Biology, a rare exploration of the obstacles on the inner path as revealed in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. You touched on this in your book, but the article was much more extensive and uh, looked at the kleshas uh, in Sanskrit, which are the uh, obstacles and the cause of suffering. I am particularly interested in this overlap that you write about as a as a Western trained medical physician and also as a student of yoga for the last around 20 years or so. I'm very interested in this overlap, this area of uh, science that you've explored so well in your in your writings Yoga has been practiced, of course, for, as I mentioned, thousands of years, and Paramahansa Yogananda called yoga a science because we can experiment with it in the laboratory of our own lives, but more and more Western science studies are being done that really um, uh, make these correlations that you talk about, that you write about in your writing. So what piqued your interest in looking at yoga and Western science?
1: Well my interest began about um let's see 12 years ago or so when a doctor named marshall Higgins walked into my yoga studio uh, he had been referred to me by a, a mutual friend and student he was embarking on a study about um, cardiovascular health particularly pre-hypertension in african americans and he wanted to find someone who could help him design a yoga protocol that he could test to see if it would reduce prehypertensive symptoms and measurements. So that's how I got started. Um, before that, I had very little interest in science. Uh, I was practicing yoga. I was studying yoga texts. Um, I would read some of the studies that were coming out, but they weren't very much in the modern or you know media at that time i don't want to say modern media they weren't very much in the media you know And in 2010 you didn't see an article every three days about what yoga did or didn't do like we do now right so my interest at that time was primarily quote unquote spiritual practice oriented um and uh with marshall that all very quickly changed um i became very interested in seeing how we could measure efficacy of yoga practices. Because most people who are doing yoga and who are teaching yoga are doing it because they'd like to make the world a happier and healthier and saner and safer and more peaceful place and try to improve conditions for people in their own bodies and minds. Uh, I think that's why most people are teaching yoga for the most part. That may or may not include spiritual liberation, Um, it might just include basic necessities as mind-body-emotion-spirit beings. Um, Not everybody is interested in enlightenment. And um, so there's always going to be this impulse towards the good which we are embarking on when we're teaching yoga. Mm And increasingly, one of those ways that we can engage in the goodness of yoga is to measure efficacies so that we're not making any false claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, the claims that we're making are backed up by something other than an anecdote from a few people. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. And I think you know, anecdotal evidence is very important, and it's a part of science, and... Um, if you have anecdotal evidence from hundreds of thousands or millions of people that say, hey, this makes me feel better, um, then at a certain point, probably there's a scientist who's going to want to start studying it, and that is is what's happened over the past 30 years with yoga. Um, there are a lot of really good scientists studying yoga right now, and they're finding some interesting things. Sometimes they're finding that some things don't really seem to make a difference. Um, and sometimes they find that things you wouldn't expect uh that have been spoken of in the yoga texts actually might be true for example um the right and left nostril are called the ida and pingala or the surya and chandra nadis and a nadi is a a tube or a river or a flute where bioelectric energy flows and we are you know bioelectric energetic beings communicating through signaling and through hormones and all sorts of things Um, and um, the right and left nostril in the yoga traditions have been associated with sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activity. so for the listeners who aren't terribly familiar these are the branches of our autonomic nervous system our autonomic nervous system is that part of uh, us that makes things work all day long so we can live and not have to think about it. This includes our heartbeat, our blood pressure, our respiration, digestion, sleep, body temperature, sexual reproduction, and a number of other functions. Um, if we had to think about breathing all day long, we wouldn't be able to do much else. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so our autonomic nervous system does this, and the parasympathetic is going to be The resting, restorative, reparative branch of the autonomic nervous system and sympathetic is that which moves us to activity. When we're moved too much or too intensely towards activity, we go into fight or flight, which is a survival mechanism to protect us from environmental load, environmental demand, stress and danger. So these have been associated with the right nostril um, as sympathetic activity and left nostril as parasympathetic activity. there was uh, two studies released in the past years which actually have um, and these are published in in fairly good journals that have reflected that this might actually be true Um, uh, the cardiorespiratory activity um, which is associated with parasympathetic upregulation um, has been shown to improve through left nostril only breathing Um, i just saw this study two weeks ago and I saw another one on um, on brain hemisphere um, waves that were measured through either right or left nostril which showed different dominance within the sympathetic or parasympathetic neural chains. So this is fascinating stuff. Um, the yogis have known it for thousands of years and it really does seem to work. Now science, modern science is backing it up. Why does that matter? Well maybe um, these types of practices will be included more in healthcare. maybe as more doctors start to learn about it they might say hey instead of um you know you're only at a pre-hypertensive level you're not really that bad you don't need to take a statin drug at this point You, you know people have tried left nostril breathing 27 times four times a day why don't you try it see if it works and make some dietary changes and maybe you can keep yourself off of drugs and have equal or not inferior Um, benefits from it. Mm -hmm. So there's a thousand different examples. It could be back pain. It could be digestive health. Um, But there are a lot of the non-communicable diseases that are ravaging Western society, um, including uh, hypertension or whether it's just high levels of stress and anxiety, burnout, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, other digestive disorders, uh, certain types of late-onset pan- um, can- um, cancers and, as well, uh, diabetes, all are associated with um, overreactivity or overresponsivity of the sympathetic um, nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so if you can down-regulate that and you can and up-regulate parasympathetic and you can support your body's ability to find homeostasis or find balance, then there's probably going to be a little bit less of these non-communicable diseases because nothing is causing these other than our lifestyle. You know, environmental demand, stress, bad diet, smoking, not sleeping, not exercising, uh, being glued to the news stations all day long, um, catastrophizing the state of the world. All of these things raise your blood pressure. That leads to heart disease. That can lead to diabetes. So. These things are preventable with lifestyle changes and certain interventions, and yoga seems to have some tools that we can use um, mm-hmm. to work on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it's really great explanation that you just gave there. That's great. I enjoyed in the article you talked about the spiritual benefits of yoga and that there are certain groups of people who are going to be attracted to to practicing yoga. Just on those basis, that there's something about it that they just love and are attracted to and that they don't need the science to be able to, you know, experience it, that just as a draw that they respond to. And, and there are other people who then need to see some of this science to actually realize that there is something there, that there's something behind this popularity of, of yoga that there is actually a scientific basis to it. And so just on the basis of, of expanding the practice that is so that, I have experienced as being transformative in my own life, and it sounds like you have as well. So that, to me, is, is a great you know, reason to do more science about it, uh, that it expands the, the people who are willing to try it and not just think of it as some crazy pretzel pose thing that applies to somebody else and not to them.
1: And you know, along those veins, it's a really good point you make also, because some people like science, some people don't need science, some people criticize science. Um, but um, if you look to the um, the, uh, uh, the history of the yoga formulations, there have always been different strands of yoga. So we have yes. Jnana Yoga, which okay. is the yoga of basically the intellect. This is examination, and Uh, If you read into the Sanskrit texts and the commentaries in the Purva Paksha or the arguments about philosophy, these are really hard to understand. It's like this is not coming into a yoga class and just lying and doing shavasana. This is very heavy mental, intellectual, you know, fine-tuning of the intellect. So we have jnana yoga, which is the path of the intellect. We have karma yoga, the path of action for people who want to feel that they're not the doers of their action, and only the divine is the receiver of the action. Um, and then there's the Bhakti Yoga, the total yoga of devotion. And then after that, there's you know the Raja Yoga, the eight-limbed yoga. So for the different types of people that we have, they're going to be attracted to different streams of yoga and engage in them. And then for some, there's a the synthesis of yoga, like um, the Integral Yoga of Shivananda, um, of aurobindo um, Yogananda as well has um, the Kriya Yoga, which is an integrated system of yoga of tapas, swadhyaya, Ishwara Pranidhana. Um, tapas is practice, and swadhyaya is examination, which is hard to do. That requires a scientific mind. And then Ishwara Pranidhana is complete total surrender. So we can have all three of those. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, right. so just to your point, you know, some people say, uh, I don't need science to show me that it works. Well, you know, if you use a cell phone or if you use a computer or if you ever get in a car or fly in an airplane, then yeah, you definitely depend on science to make things <laughs> happen in your life. <laughs> yeah. So why separate that off from yoga? You yeah. you don't need to. Um, yeah. It's just configuration of stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, that was a lovely overview of the of the four different paths of yoga, and of course, one of the missions of this program that I set forth at the beginning is just to expand people's understanding of yoga—that it's really much more than just the um, physical poses and the breathing exercises that most people. That most people think of when they think of yoga, they think of the the, maybe the cover of the most recent yoga magazine that they saw in the checkout line at the supermarket. Um, And it it really is so much more than that. I mean, the the four of yoga that you just outlined probably made that clear to people who may not have been clear about that before. I do want to switch to talking now about these uh, kleshas, these um, causes of suffering, because you really dive into that in your article. In a practical sense, m- many of us come to the deeper practices of yoga because we are suffering in some way and want to find a better way to live. And the the teachings in the Yoga Sutra which your article really draws on the yoga sutras of Patanjali teach us about actions or Kriyas to overcome suffering and to obtain conscious union with God, which is Samadhi or actually another meaning of yoga as uh, Samadhi. Um, and that is, um, called kriya yoga which is the primary teaching at cse and as you mentioned was the where was the um, teaching that yogananda brought to the united states in 1920 when he came here from india so let's talk about these kleshas for a couple of minutes what are they and what are how is it that they are the cause of suffering in our lives
1: so the rishi patanjali um, popularized these kleshas in the formulation that we think about them today Uh, He wrote a collection of sutras, and a sutra is a very short, incontrovertible phrase made up of as few words as possible to get a very direct point across. He wrote uh, a collection of 196 of them called the Patanjali Yoga Darshana. Uh, The sutra form is a very specific type of literature in Sanskrit and in philosophy. Um, it's not long form writing, and it usually requires, always requires commentary to elucidate the meaning of the short sentences or the short phrases. They can't even be called sentences because a lot of sutras don't even have verbs. Um, you know, maybe just a, an object, so um, or a subject. So, um, Patanjali Yoga Darshan is made up of four padas or four chapters. The second one is the chapter on practice. The first is a practice on samadhi, very difficult to attain. Uh, the second one is meant for people who have a certain level of focus of mind, that sometimes we can be focused, sometimes we're not focused. And this is how it is for most people who come to do yoga or meditate or do some spiritual undertaking. Like we can stay focused or attentive for a little while during the day. Um, but not for terribly long periods of time, and then the mind wanders away. But somehow we have the ability to bring it back. So this is called a Vikshipta state of mind, semi-concentrated. So for the person who is, has a semi-concentrated mind, you know, like myself and anyone who does yoga in our studio, um, they are a suitable candidate for the practices of chapter two which are the first five limbs of ashtanga yoga. And so Patanjali potentially begins by saying that there are three actions in yoga that are very important. Um, and these are tapas, swadhyaya, and Ishvara pranidhana. And they're kriyas, they're actions. Meaning these actions could be contained in many other types of behaviors that you carry out. They're not specific things that you might only do, say, you know, like a headstand, is a very discrete, specific action that you'll probably only carry out when you're on your yoga mat. You know, you're not going, or unless you're an Instagram influencer, then you'll carry out a headstand wherever you want so you can get more likes on your posts. But for most people, you're only gonna do it on your yoga mat. But tapas, or this type of um, mental discipline, uh, swajaya, self-reflection and self-examination, and Ishwara Pranidhana, surrender, can be practiced all throughout the day under under any circumstance so you can have this continuous practice of yoga happening throughout the day it doesn't have to be relegated to a time period so um tapas, swadhyaya tapas is um, literally means to heat or to cook and it's related to things that you do with your body with your physical frame swadhyaya is mental and is related to words so the two um, meanings of Swadhyaya. Well, there are many, but the two popular ones are number one, um, Swadhyaya, which is the Adhyaya uh, or the study or the chapters of Swa yourself. So it's examining yourself. How am I behaving? How am I thinking? How am I acting? What did I do today? What did I do today that I did wrong that I want to correct in the future? Um, all these types of reflections, reflecting on how is it that I have this... Um, behavior that keeps recurring within me and where might it have come from and how can I figure out how to uproot it. Um, uh, Memories, experiences, all this are going to be in the realm of self examination. Um, Another meaning for swadhyaya is study of text or repetition of mantra. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important meaning too, um, not as uh, sort of reinforced as it could be, I think, in the yoga worlds. The study of text is really important because you can start to understand your mind mm-hmm. from a study mm-hmm. of a text and like patanjali yoga darshana is basically a roadmap of your inner consciousness and if mm-hmm. you read through the four chapters and you like reflect on them you understand on so many subtle levels like what's happening in your mind we're going to take a break now
0: just we got about a minute um, so, no, that was that was great, though. That was really um, a helpful uh, overview of the three main practices of of Kriya Yoga that, as you said, yeah. Patanjali does set forth in the Patanjali um, Yoga uh, Sutras or Darshana, as you uh, were describing it. Well, um, I think uh, break, what, what we'll do is, yeah, we'll come back to the you, Kleshas uh, and right and after, after you, the break yeah, no that okay, that would that would be great. and And the article, oh. your article really goes into uh, some detail about how the kleshas are associated with different parts of the brain, which I think will be very interesting for our for our listeners. So that's what we'll focus in on when we come back from the break. And in the meantime, you are listening to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. I have been discussing the science of yoga with our guest, author and yoga teacher, Eddie Stern. He uh, has a book, uh, One Simple Thing, and also a recent article in the um, uh, most recent Hinduism Today magazine. Both of those are quite worthy of your time. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at theyogahour.com. When we come back from the break, we will explore more about the obstacles, these clasias. Where do they come from? What parts of the brain are they associated with? And how can we work to um, overcome these obstacles to uh, have more peace and more access to higher states of consciousness in our lives? We'll be right back. most positive place on the internet. Thanks for listening to unityonlineradio.org
1: Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, insights and practices for spiritually conscious living.
0: Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo and here today with Eddie Stern, yoga teacher and author based in New York City, He is currently an instructor at New York University in the Yoga and Physiology Program. And once again, his website is eddystern.com. So, Eddie, we were just talking about, right before the break, we were talking about the three main practices of Kriya Yoga. And we thought it would be good to come back and talk about, well, okay, so what? (laughs) Like, Why why are they important? Why should we pay attention to them?
1: Okay, so the Kriyas do two important things. Number one, they thin or diminish the kleshas. And number two, they prepare you for samadhi, which is the jumping off point for the really deep practices in yoga. So they're key to our success in yoga. So thinning the kleshas, what is a klesha? A klesha is an obstruction to knowing who we truly are. Uh, it said that there are five reasons why we suffer, and these are the five kleshas. Uh, the word klishta literally means an affliction, and what do we, uh, what are we afflicted by? We're afflicted by things that are happening in our own mind. Even if the world is a difficult place, our mind doesn't need to be shaken by it. So we're afflicted by the movements of the mind, not so much by external circumstances. So the first reason that we suffer is called avidya. Avidya is an incomplete knowing of who we truly are. A complete knowing of who we truly are would to know ourselves as pure conscious beings that um, are, you know, fit in with whatever philosophical viewpoint you might hold, whether it's a yoga one or a Vedantic one or anything, that you your true being is one with the universe or your true being is pure consciousness or bliss or whatever your conception might be. Pat- Patanjali's conception of pure being is that you are the seer, you're the eternal witness. You're not taking part in the changing creation. So avidya is not completely knowing that. You might know that a little bit, which is why you do yoga. You have an idea about that, but you don't fully embody it. And so therefore you identify with other things objects changing objects like our body our name our reputation our wealth uh, the clothes we wear the ambitions we have you know we identify with all these things rather than identifying with being and all those things fit under a category of something called asmita asmita means i-ness when i don't identify with pure consciousness then I identify with the changing modes of nature in all of their resplendent glory." And that is basically how we find ourselves in even a greater predicament um, in our lives than we do when we identify with self. Uh, The identification solely with changing forms, again, like our body, our name, our reputation, our desires, etc., is predicated on two things. Now, why is that a source of suffering? Because our body is gonna change, our reputation is gonna change, our wealth is gonna change, our health is gonna change. The only thing which is certain about nature is change. But we resist change. We wanna stay the same forever. Or we wanna reach a point where we think we're at our peak and then we never wanna leave that peak. So the holding on to not wanting to change is part of asmita, that's part of identity. So now identity is predicated on two things. Number one, the things that I'm attached to, the things that I really like, and number two, the things that I don't like. And these are two sides of the same coin. I really like um, coffee, I really you know, don't like matcha. I really like um, David Bowie, I really don't like the Bee Gees. Actually, that's not true, I like both of them. <laughs> So, you know, you'll you'll set yourself, you know, and one of the things about likes and dislikes is that um, usually one attachment determines the things which are your aversion which is the thing you don't like. So you could be a really staunch um, Democrat, and that means... By default, you have to really dislike the Republicans and everything they stand for. Right.
0: I um, liked your I liked your example in the article where you talked about having a team, like for example, having it one team, one football team, you know that you that you root exactly. for, and then uh, you know how you were and talking then you about you have
1: it. to hate all the other teams. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, so big, your point in the article was that sometimes. Uh, We think about our attachments as the things that we like, but you were pointing out that our attachments are actually perhaps even more so powered by the things that we don't like, because if there's one team that you like, there's what, I don't know how many football teams there are, but maybe, I don't know, 12 or 20 or however many there are that you don't like. So there's a lot more that you don't like than you like.
1: Exactly. Well, I don't know how many football teams there are there, but I know there's more than one. And so they're <laughs> getting into trouble. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's exactly it. And um, so one of the ways to begin to diminish aversion, the duesha, is to stop actively disliking things and saying, you know, that thing's just not for me. That doesn't appeal to my taste. Um, and that can just Soften your active dislike of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I uh, really love, um, you know, um, Bob Dylan, mit, but Norwegian death metal, it's just not for me. Rather than saying, oh, that's the worst thing that ever came to the face of the planet, it's ruining the youth of today. So <laughs> well, I want to go back. Yeah, yeah, that's well, great. We advice. have one more. Also. Yeah, yes, we have exactly. one more, which is Abhinivesha, which is yeah. the clinging. Well, Abhinivesha is often translated as fear of death. Um, or clinging to life. And it's both of those things. Um, The clinging to life is the being stuck on or the the total clinging to our likes and dislikes is defining who we are. And Patanjali, actually, Vyasa says in his commentary on Patanjali, that it's not so much death that we fear, but extinction. Um, Because in the Hindu tradition and in the yogic traditions that if you're when you die, you're going to be born again, and your birth will be propelled by whatever actions you've done in this life. So, rebirth is a certainty until you're fully liberated. So, therefore, there's nothing to fear in death. But, extinction is a full like the void you know, I will cease to exist. Because, in liberation, the I, the individual I, ceases to exist, but consciousness doesn't cease to exist. That will be your true form. But, in extinction, There's no identity, there's no consciousness, there's just a void of nothingness, and that's terrifying. So, and this is said to be strong even in the wise. So these are the five kleshas, um, not knowing who we are, creating a false identity, which is based on our desires and our aversions, and then clinging to those with our dear life, fearing extinction. Uh, these are the five things that cause us to suffer. And the things that will begin to diminish this are the Kriyas of Yoga. Tapas, swadhyaya, Ishwara Pranidhana.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, beautiful. Just beautiful overview. So you in the article you associate uh, each Klesha with a part of the of the brain which is the science part of it. So let's go through them again. So starting with uh, starting, I think you start with um, the brainstem and you start uh, with uh, um, uh, abinivetia. Abhin- so can you yeah. uh, review that for our listeners? How is it that the the source of abinivetia is mapped onto the brainstem?
1: So um, this brings us back to the very beginning of our conversation where we talked about the autonomic nervous system. Maintaining our functions of life. Autonomic nervous system is our heartbeat, our respiration, digestion, sleep, sexual reproduction, body temperature, um, etc. Um, our heartbeat and our respiration are the facets of our nervous system that are literally clinging to life every second of the day. And if we stop breathing for a moment in pranayama, or even if we just hold our breath out of fear, at a certain point the body is gonna say, hey, time to breathe, because if you don't, you're not gonna be existing anymore. So the body has its own mechanisms to make sure that it's always constantly clinging to life because the body wants to survive. We have 600 million years of evolution of cells um, bounding, binding together uh, into complicated structures uh, complicated structures for the sake of survival. That even the even the single cell um, uh, creatures or single celled amoebas that existed 600 million years ago would move away from danger and move towards nourishment, mm. um, move away from things that were going to threaten their existence and move towards safety. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why cells started binding together so they could create more complicated structures that would ensure their survival. So we have these six hundred million years of evolution of because se- we are a cellular body, thirty seven point two trillion cells approximately, that have um, that are coming together in a complex organism to survive, to continue, to produce more beings like us that will continue to survive as well. So survival is hardwired into our cellular body, and we have intricate structures that are maintaining that every day every minute, every second. So with Abhinivesha, what happens is, we begin to do specific deliberate practices that help us transcend a little bit our survival functions. So for example, if the body has a a deep need to breathe 15 to 18 times per minute, with the yoga practices we say, what happens if I slow my breathing down to five breaths a minute, to three breaths a minute, to one breath a minute, to one breath every two or three minutes. Um, where will my identity shift to? What will happen in my inner levels of consciousness when all of a sudden I have transcended the, lo- the need to breathe for longer and longer periods of time without dying? Mm. Well, who will I be? What shifts will occur? And so we can do that with breathing we can do that with eating because hunger and thirst are also a function of the brain stem uh, part of the functions of the brain stem of course it's a complicated mechanism but one of the things that the yogis do is mitihara mit, mitahara, which is the restriction of food maybe eating particular diets at certain times of the year um, intermittent fasting all these types of things um, help us transcend compulsivity for certain time periods during the day. Sexual restraint of brahmacharya um, is also the going against the grain of some natural functions of the body. So we see that the main things that the yogis are doing as practices are all things that the brainstem is ruling over, Uh, wakefulness, respiration, heart rate, sexual reproduction, and digestion, eating. All these yogic practices are geared towards mastery of those to a certain extent so that we're not bound by them. And so this is an actual physical activity, a Kriya, that we can do to help get us beyond Abhinivesha and find different levels of sovereignty um, so we're not ruled by our taste buds. We're not ruled by the eyes and what we see and what we desire through the eyes. Um, This is a type of mastery. Mm-hmm. So that's Abhi and Um and um, great. And I wanted to
0: right. uh, I wanted to move to uh, the the midbrain, the limbic system, which processes fear, memory, behavior, and emotions, and which you associate with the Raga and Dvesha that we were talking about. Those two kleshas of uh, desire and aversion, attractions and aversions. Um, Will you expand on that, the association of the limbic system with those two uh, kleshas?
1: Certainly. So raga and dvesha are considered to be uh, in the yoga vashishta like fast emotions. Um, And the fast emotions are the things that drive us towards our desires and cause us to have um, an excessive amount of desires for things that we don't really need, anger, lust, greed, jealousy, hatred, and laziness. Um, well, sometimes envy is one of those as well. So these are considered to be the fast emotions. These are called the um, arisha Dwargas, the six internal enemies. And in the brain, the emotional centers of the brain are going to be very quickly driven by these. Um, When we get angry about something, when we have a tremendous desire for something, when we feel a tremendous jealousy or envy uh, or any of these six um, so-called poisons, these are going to be processed, information processing in the limbic system. And so the softening of these fast, hard, quick, sometimes violent emotions are done through the opposite um, emotions, the softer ones that we find displayed in the yamas like ahimsa, satya, asteya, like non-harm, in truthfulness, kindness, um, non-stealing of other people's property or ideas, uh, as well as the emotions that are associated with bhakti, with devotion, of love and compassion, of generosity caring, kindness, all of these types of emotions and, um, and and mental bhavanas, as they're called, are going to reduce the hard, fast, violent emotions, thus calming down the limbic system. Mm-hmm. So raga dwesha mm-hmm. will be expressed through the limbic system and the practices that we can do within swadhyaya and within bhakti, because it's so and also this is a little bit of Ishvara pranidhana is associated with bhakti um, are going to calm the limbic system and then when we can examine what causes us to go into hyper overdrive or hyper emotionality and not act on it we can feel it but we don't have to act on it that dampens the energy and that gives us access to higher brain centers of the prefrontal cortex where we're going to go into deeper levels of spiritual advancement. Now, why do we jump from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex simply by not acting on a hard, fast emotion? The reason is um, we need to take an executive action in the brain. We make a decision, a strategic decision to not act is part of the prefrontal cortex activity, executive functioning. So if I decide, I'm not going to act on this. I'm not going to respond to this um, perceived insult. I'm not going to respond to this perceived hurt. I'm not going to respond to this desire to eat my entire chocolate bar. Um, you know, a siren is going by. Uh, just let him travel for a minute. Uh, he's gone. So if I if I'm able to, you know, say I would like to eat this entire chocolate bar, but I'm not going to. That's an executive decision and what that's done is that has brought my brainwave activity out from the limbic system and into the prefrontal cortex where I can choose, where I can express compassion and empathy, strategic planning. Um, I can look to the future to see what's going to give me a better outcome than just uh, mindlessly and emotionally engaging in this thing which is in front of me. Uh, So that's another level of mastery and it's all being reflected through brain function. Yeah, the brain doesn't With, cause it to happen, but the activity can be measured in that area of the brain.
0: Yes, yeah, good uh, clarification. We haven't yet really touched on meditation, and I know for my own self that that move that you're talking about, that decision not to not to react, not to sort of get triggered into a, a, a bigger emotional outburst when I, when my meditation practice is very steady, um, it's like, there's a space that opens up there, you know, for me between the, the stimulus and the response where that's a space that I can, um, that I can make a different choice. Whereas when I when my meditation practice is not as strong, I do, it's actually one of my little keys that I need to, you know, redouble my attention on my meditation practice is that I I am ending up responding to something that I really don't want to respond to because I like, you know, someone cuts me off in traffic or whatever. I mean, how worthless is a response in that situation? It's crazy. You know, I'm not going to be able to change that person's person's behavior by whatever action I might take. Um, So I I did want to just underline that, that for me, meditation is one of those ways that opens up that space that gives me the choice of how I want to respond.
1: Well, that's a very good description of it also, because part of the process of meditation, whether you're using a mantra or a breath meditation or other um, types of meditations is uh, expanding the gap in the space between thoughts and resting in that space. So you'll have a thought and then the thought will fade, and then another thought will come up. And sometimes that thought is just your mantra and, and nothing else extraneous. And then sometimes the mantra disappears, but no thought appears. And there's a gap there that you're just present with. And so resting in the gap, expanding the gap, is typified by many of the meditation practices. And so what you're saying, I think, is a really nice way of saying it, that, um, you know, when we're practicing regularly we can dwell in that gap of a response even when life is throwing a lot of stuff at us mm-hmm. but when we're not practiced then we're not practiced at the gap and now this gap the space between the stimulus and the response or the thought and the activity associated with thought um is a neuroplastic change which occurs In the underlying character of how our brain functions so our brain is wired together by neurons by axons and dendrites and how they're communicating with each other and depending on our learned behavior and our adapted behavior our brain is going to wire in certain ways and meditation is one way of changing and strengthening certain neural functions and neural connections and so and it's very interesting because at the end of chapter one of, of Yoga Sutra, Patanjali basically says that the the total nirodha, stillness or stopping of any arising, of any lingering memory or anything like that, becomes the characteristic of the mind. So that a thought can't arise because even as a thought begins to arise, or a memory called a samskara, you have the power of nirodha, of, of stopping or mastering the arising of any thought. So the character of your mind becomes the non arising of any samskara, the non arising of any thought. You can purposefully do that for whatever time period you choose. When that happens, any past samskaras that are that are troubling um, that are disturbing, they get burned out, like seeds getting burned up. And this is the analogy which is always used in yoga and other texts, that burning up the seeds of memory, uh, the seed impressions that cause us to have habitual behavior, and replacing it with the new learned behavior of the non-arising of thought. This is a very advanced level of meditation, but what he's showing is that this is an actual new characteristic of your field of consciousness that you've created. They're not allowing thoughts to arise. And uh, now you have a free, open, expanded mind rather than a constricted, fractured, um, reactive field of consciousness. Now you're open, free, easily entered into an expanded state of freedom. And so um, when we're practicing meditation, we're changing the neural connections that make this level of freedom a greater possibility because it's supported by a physical structure. Physical structures are great things because, you know, it's a physical structure that allows my phone to hold its shape. It's a physical structure that allows my body to remain upright. Um, You know, it's a physical structure that keeps this building over my head. Uh, So when it's well formed and intentionally built, it does the thing that it's meant for. And so one of the great things about our brain is that, you know, we don't, we know some of the things that it's meant for, but not everything, but we have a lot of flexibility for playing around with the potential of the brain to mold it into the type of a shape we want it to be so that we can attain or learn uh, or engage in the things that we find important to us. So the brain's a fascinating structure.
0: Indeed. And yeah. I loved how you brought in the neuroplasticity and how the the brain is actually physically changing. And these changes in meditators brains have actually been shown scientifically that. And to me, that is one of the things that underlines the importance of having a steady practice, a regular practice. It's not. You're literally changing your brain and it's not something that you can do if you meditating, for example, like two hours, one day a week is not the same as meditating for 30 minutes every day because you're building those structures. You're literally building those structures and changing the structures in the brain. And with that, unbelievably, we've already come to the uh, end of the show um I, I know listeners will wonder where the asmita and avidya are mapped we'll just give you a little uh, a little tease and say uh read eddie's article in hinduism today or his wonderful book one simple thing uh but they are mapped onto the uh, frontal cortex um, it's really been delightful eddie to have you as a guest on the show um i'm laurel trujillo producer and host of the show. And we've been discussing the science of yoga and exploring the kleshas or obstacles on the path as revealed in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. My guest has been Eddie Stern, yoga instructor and author. And again, you can check out his website, eddystern.com. Thank you so much, Eddie, for joining me today on the show.
1: Thank you for having me back. It was a pleasure.
0: And we'll have eddie's information and the recording of this program on our website theyogahour.com we hope you join us for the many online programs offered by the center for spiritual enlightenment currently there is a daily online meditation in the morning from 6 30 to 7 30 a.m also in the afternoon from 4 to 40 4 30 p.m we also offer sunday satsang at 10 from 10 to 11 typically uh, and all of these, that's on Sunday morning, and all these times are Pacific Time. Uh, Yogacharya O'Brien's uh, talks and book information are all on her website, ellengraceobrien.com. And you can find out more about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment's uh, programs and online, online stuff going on at csecenter.org. My guest next time on the Yoga Hour will be Michelle Cassandra Johnson. We will be discussing how we can heal from individual and collective grief. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, as well as Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet.